0: Today I welcome Chris Seal, Head of School at the Tanglin Trust School in Singapore. In this episode, we talk about why Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk on creativity is still an issue nearly 20 years on, the DNA of an outstanding school, the challenges of university guidance counsellors and living into school values. Yeah, yeah, I mean you talk about, you know, marshalling education. You know, I know in Sir Ken Robinson's, you know, famous 2006 TED Talk, he suggested that well, he more than suggested, he straight out said that the current system is completely out of touch and it stifles creativity. You know, move us forward, you know, 17 years. You've suggested that not much has changed since. Why have we not made progress in changing education?
1: What's stopping us? Great question. And of course, it's multifaceted. And I go back to the first time I heard that speech. I was in a conference and I sort of came out of the conference. I think it was one of the boarding schools association conference. I came out of it completely convinced by his arguments, and I remain convinced of them today. I think, you know, there's also a follow-up that he did about the industrialization of education and how he wants to shift paradigms. And and I think all of that is true. And so I sort of find myself feeling very guilty, rather frustrated, and I suppose with age, a little bit more philosophical about why things haven't changed. Uh, I mean, I think formal education is not that old. You know, you're only talking 100, 150 years of sort of systemized education in the UK. So you'd like to think that you know, you should be able to change something like that. But actually, when you get into it, and anybody that's worked in it for a while finds that it's kind of set up for the status quo. You know, there's a lot of vested interests. And I don't say this being critical of any of them in particular, but certainly universities have a vested interest in quality assurance and what comes their way. Exam boards have found themselves in a very strong position in terms of, you know, not only from a profit perspective, but also in terms of their influence on what happens tradition has become something, you know, remarkably strong and very difficult to move and shift over time. So I think all of those factors kind of breed the status quo. And I think what's particularly been difficult over the last few years is, you know, 11 education secretaries in not that many years. And I think the political instability means that at the very time you would like to talk about change, I suppose I'm just maybe a little bit more realistic than some and and wonder whether it's actually uh, going to happen. I also think that, you know, workplaces are changing, but I'm not entirely sure that schools see the connection there. And although they talk about it a little bit and, and you hear it relentlessly spoken about in terms of preparing students for jobs that don't exist yet, I don't know how many schools actually reach out into that world and try and discover what those jobs actually are. I think it becomes a theoretical exercise. You know, it's a curious thing working in schools for a long time. You know, you find yourself adjusting to the pace of the school that you're in, I do also think as you get older, your pace decreases. And so I think, you know, maybe that's normal in most industries. But I think what we're finding is that it is hard to make meaningful reform in education over a period of time. If you think about, came into the profession mid to late 90s, nothing's really changed other than the technology that's around us. You know, I think the quality of teaching has improved. I think that's been a, a huge shift in terms of training and other things, but don't think it's changed in the way that Sir Ken thought it should. And But I still think he's right.
0: But should school leaders be doing more to influence this change? You know, you talked about status quo and it's easy to sit and say it's quo and we all get together at conferences and you know, I know heads get together and we all talk about, you know, the future of education and what should change. And yeah, it's all wrong and it's broken. Let's get rid of GCSEs. What's the point? You know, we're on this conveyor belt of education that, and I almost say that it takes us to this cookie cutter approach and off the peg life. In other words, it's been templated. It's you going through it and you come out of it and you kind of got to fit something. And yet the real kind of purpose of education is to ensure that you know, we all have this holistic view to ensure that every child can thrive, that you can go out there. We talk about lifelong learners and sometimes it's used as a cliche, but it's to love learning, to have eyes wide open. Should we give up? We've had backdrop of COVID, which to me has been the petri dish of change, where we can go, Do you know what? We've had technology thrown at us, but education in itself has to shift because of the people. What should we really do? And can we really make meaningful change or is it for the next generation to pick that one up too?
1: Part of our job is to encourage the next generation to rethink things and to design and devise the structures that they want to see uh, over a period of time, given you know the knowledge and also the support and guidance that we're offering them. But I think that's also a cop-out, as we know. And I think you're absolutely right that you know educators, leaders, we do have the opportunity to make change and we should. And I think I'm as guilty as anyone, as many heads are, of working within the system to try to do that. Part of that, I really don't think this is a cop-out, is understanding what a great school looks like, that actually you can create an effect change without disrupting the system necessarily. And I think this is partly where the argument lies, is how do we get this done? And you know, recently I had a number of discussions with colleagues uh, in other schools about the GCSEs. You mentioned the GCSEs. not the GCSE's fault. You know, they're a passive, it's an exam, you know, it's not active in this. It's a passive mechanism that we've used since 1988. And it's for us to decide whether we want to or not. And I suppose my view is that We work within the system, educate people well to perform well and get great outcomes. But in and around that, what great schools do is offer a broad, holistic education that's way more than the GCSEs. The GCSEs is just a starting point. The curriculum is just a starting point. Clubs, societies, activities, sport, music, drama, all those brilliant things that go on are what make people interesting, young people interesting. And back to your point right at the start, give them the opportunity to thrive, whether it's at university, Whether as in Singapore, it's through two years of national service, uh, whether it's uh, in other schools through straight into work, it's all of those things, it's an aggregation of all those things. So I think sometimes, funnily enough, the GCSE gets an unfair rap. I'm sure Ken Robinson was no lover of them either. I'm not an enormous fan of them, but I'd like to have an alternative and a solution first that's agreed upon, where everybody can move forward knowing that that has parity across the system. And I go back to where we started just a while ago. You've got to get the universities on board. You have to have political stability and a long-term view. And that's what we're sadly lacking at the moment, certainly in the UK.
0: Yeah, and also it's been connected with the world around us. And, you know, technology is easy to see the changes that that's put on us, you know, our children, workplaces, just the world. Technology is exponential. And, you know, that's the problem is that we allow it probably too much into our lives too readily. And so, yes, technology, we're seeing change and drive us, but we probably as people haven't changed as much and education hasn't shifted. How do we balance those kind of skills and what the world needs and bring that into education? I mean, this isn't a GCSE conversation. I think there's too many GCSEs. And I think time could be cut out of the timetable, which is always a problem at schools is timetabling, to actually allow kids to look at skills, character, other things that are going to make them stand out. Because, as you say, all we're trying to do at school is unlock the next level. It's like a game, right? Be really good at this and you are going to unlock a level and you could go up a level. Tell me about those kind of skills and technology and and what do we do?
1: I couldn't agree with you more on two points. Uh, One, there's too many GCSEs, of course there are. You know, collecting them upwards of 11, 12 GCSEs doesn't make any sense. And, you know, going back to a reference point that I've mentioned a couple of times, no university is requiring that of anybody. Uh, So I'm not entirely sure why that continues. We're looking at that very closely here at Tanglin. The other thing we're looking very closely here at Tanglin is the curriculum. You're absolutely right. What should the curriculum do? Uh, We've now inserted two co-curriculum slots within our school day ready for next year. We're also inserting a pastoral slot, which will link up with assemblies in our life skills curriculum so that we can begin to offer that holistic education that we talked about. You know, you've got to start doing what you say you do. And I think what that also means is giving time during the day to make these things happen. So schools have been speaking about academic enrichment and the wider aspects of learning for a long time. Uh, You've got to allow that space. It can't just all be shoved at the end of the school day or in lunchtime. So we're going to be doing that twice a week from next year. The other point in your question is a fascinating question between Something that's going to sound really traditional, but is evidence-based, and that's the use of the pen, that actually, you're right, we're surrounded by technology. We use technology all the time, and actually where we are at the moment is a discussion about something that's been in entangled for a couple of years, the pen-enabled device, where we're using the pen and the technology in front of us to learn better, learn faster, learn in a way that's a little bit more efficient. We're also using much more evidence-based work around what we call knowledge organisers and retrieval practice so that homeworks aren't a relentless stream of projects and endless tasks. They're shorter, punchier, support learning better and are followed up in lessons. So I think it's a combination of all those things you've talked about and harnessing great technology is a key part of that, definitely.
0: And it's great that you're looking at, and I think schools need to look at curriculum redesign. How much flexibility do you have within a school like yours? Because it's not like the UK state system, which they have very little choice. You have more, I hope, flexibility being a, a leading
1: international British school. You're absolutely right, Simon. We do. We have that luxury and it is a luxury. It's a real privilege to be able to design a curriculum in the way that you want it to. So we will be looking really closely at uh, the number of GCSEs next year. Uh, We are incredibly fortunate to have both IB diploma and A-levels in the sixth form, but also that sort of formative stage uh, in a senior school through years seven, eight, nine, we can decide what the allocations are per subject. And of course, that links to the subjects you offer at GCSE, but also doesn't have to in some respects. You can choose what you want to do. At um, year seven and eight here, we do two languages, plus we do Latin. Uh, So we have the opportunity to choose that because we think it's valuable. Uh, We also then offer a bit of a taster in year nine into subjects like philosophy, and uh, we do sort of a mini version of the EPQ. Uh, So all of those things are completely within our gift. And yeah, you know, we've had a good look at things this year and a couple of changes we're making for next year actually sound pretty boring. We're going to do more English, um, but that's from a, a decision that we made that we just felt were a little bit undercooked uh, with our English curriculum through the school. We are incredibly fortunate to be able to do that. And really, I suppose when people get a little bit concerned about the GCCA level stuff, it's the outcomes that, you know, people worry about when you start moving the curriculum parts around. and And I think that's only human. But as always, and certainly going back to my sporting days, if you concentrate on the process, then the outcomes will come anyway. So, you know, a good curriculum design, great teaching, aspirational parents and students, we are incredibly fortunate uh, here to be able to have all those things in place.
0: You know, obviously, Sir Ken Robinson was talking about creativity. And I know that the World Economic Forum always publishes what the skills that are required to survive and succeed at in the workplace you know, critical thinking, problem solving, creativity were there from 2015. They were the ones predicted between 2015 and 2020. I know now that the ones between 2020 and 2025 is analytical, it's active learning, and it's complex problem solving. But creativity and critical thinking still remain within it. If we know what this is, what the workplace needs, we've got obviously the universities wedged between the workplace and you. Should we be doing more? and what are schools doing to kind of bridge that piece? So we're getting skill-based
1: learning in This is not for everybody, but our view is that it's not about teaching those skills in a discrete way. It's about having those skills embedded in all you do. So, you know, a couple of recent examples, uh, yesterday I sat and watched an hour of Hamlet, uh, completely directed and led by one student in year 13. So, you know, the skills that he's picked up through his idea, encouraged and supported by head of drama, you know, he's learned negotiation with the uh, drama technicians, the opportunity to collaborate with his fellow students, uh, the opportunity to collaborate with his elders, you know, in the technical department. It's about facilitating some of those things. It, it, about three or four hours before that, I sat and listened to a, a young lady interviewing for our head team, which is our sort of sixth form leadership team. And she just said very simply that, you know, we should collaborate more and we should collaborate more by building stronger relationships and we should build stronger relationships by having more social events. And you just kind of listen to, you know, somebody of 17, 17 and a half, just telling you exactly what you already know that, you know, really great schools have a series of social events that puts people together and builds those relationships so that you then can work together. And again, that's we're lucky and there's privilege around all of that, which we understand. And that, again... Can you design this stuff into the school is the key question because these types of things have always happened in independent schools. I was incredibly fortunate to work at Millfield where a whole range of ideas, completely crazy ideas, were fostered and encouraged like suddenly doing rowing out of nowhere. And in fact, I remember the boat going on the pond at one stage and bursting the lining of the pond at Millfield. I think it cost about 8,000 pounds to redo the lining of the pond. The skills that those students got from being the first group of people through, you know, a rowing program, the skills that our debating team get here from, you know, discussing things that they know about, they've researched. You mentioned complex problem solving. We're involved in something here called N-Explorers linked up with Shell, where young people are finding solutions to some of the challenges of the day. And so that's a long winded ramble to suggest that a lot of this stuff is already happening in really good schools. Probably the real trick and the thing that we're trying to come to, I suppose, like others is how do you design that in and then can you quantify it? And that's a much harder challenge.
0: You're head of senior school at Tanglin Trust School in Singapore. How do you balance the UK education thread with ensuring yeah. you're maintaining the Singaporean identity?
1: Any school, British school, as we call ourselves, British International School, has to have a keen eye on where it is and what it's doing. And I think part of that is being respectful about where you are. We're visitors in the country. Uh, We try and add to the community. We have GCSEs A-levels, as you know, uh, IB Diploma. We have systems from all over the world in what we call a British school, but actually is more of an international school. Our percentage of British students is below 40. We have a whole range of students from all over the world. Uh, we do have some students here who are based in Singapore because of dual passports are able to be with us. And I think what's interesting about British international schools is the sense of Britishness is a really interesting question. What does that mean? What is that? You know, Does that mean we fly the Union Jack all the time? No. Uh, does that mean we have baggers and mash every lunchtime? No. There's a sense of what we're trying to do, which is be international and be inclusive. And I think the Britishness at the moment tends to be uh, the curriculum that we follow. uh, Most international schools will describe themselves as as national curriculum plus schools, feeding into GCSE and beyond. But also, you know, that sense that an awful lot of our teaching staff hail from the UK. Now, again, that's changing and it should change and needs to change. Uh, Schools of this type need to be more diverse moving forward and understanding of the fact that You know, just because you come from a different part of the world, doesn't mean, you can't teach the British curriculum as it stands. I think there's still a lot of work to do around international schools embedding with their community. It's partly why tomorrow uh, we're meeting with a group of local schools uh, with another international school off the island, UWC. So we're going to go and begin some conversations about what real partnership looks like. And I would argue that's probably overdue.
0: I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. What do you think makes Tangler one of the highest achieving and most oversubscribed schools in Singapore, if not the world? Is it cultural or is it intentional?
1: Yeah, I think it is cultural. And I think the culture has built up over many years. And, you know, we'll be celebrating our centenary in a couple of years' time. And there's a strong culture here of, to a degree, self selecting because of the way that Singapore is and what you have to do to get a job here but you've got a group of uh, highly aspirational parents, some fantastic students. Yeah, Tanglin's been really fortunate to be able to select from some of the best teachers all over the world. And I think, you know, plus with a a fair degree and certainly looking at my predecessors and others' predecessors, a fair degree of devolved leadership. You know, there's been quite a, a sense that, faculties and departments have really got on with the job of doing their thing without too much interference from the likes of me and others. And I think that's been broadly a good thing. So there's a culture of wanting to learn, and there's a culture of wanting to do well. And I think as a result, the reputation is built over a period of time. And it's a richly deserved reputation. It's part of my presentation to parents at the moment on open days is, look, what's my first impressions? And it's pretty good. Uh, It's good at what it says it does not only from the outcomes perspective, but from, you know, the cultural feeling. It's warm, it's welcoming. You know, the students uh, love being here. And I think that rubs off. So look, it becomes a cycle, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, that people see the culture, they aspire to it, they want to become part of it. And on we go again, and long may that continue.
0: And how much do you subscribe to the, like the league tables and uh, and obviously the final results, as opposed to everything you're talking about is this whole child they've got these great unique pathways that exist within a school. Is it easy to get a perception from the outside that it's an academic hothouse when in reality, you're just very good at what you do, you offer this broad curriculum, you have the right type of parents that want to allow their child to thrive and succeed academically as well as around it. How do you balance that piece? Because from the outside, as I say, you look in and go, it's just an academic hothouse in Singapore. I'm sure
1: they don't do anything else. You nailed it in a way. I mean, you answered your own question. Uh, it is a combination of all those things, Simon, as you know, that, that we are very fortunate to have a strong culture here of wanting to do well. And it is true that Singapore is self-selecting in terms of the types of industries that our parents work in and what they do. But also, it genuinely is based on a desire to want to educate the whole child. Uh, you know, we spent two or three hours last night with a sporting showcase of our young people who are about to leave and having great fun on the sports field. Uh, The sport is improving. We're doing better and better with that. The drama is quite extraordinary. Uh, The music, uh, another thing that we're very keen to continue to improve in. And so there's all of that plus fantastic pastoral care. And I think, yeah, people can look from the outside and make judgments based on 41.4 average in IB, 40% A-star at A-level, and they will take a particular view. I would say that's a construct of having nearly 200 students in a year group and 200 students who are ready to learn and and do a great job of it. Yeah, I understand that. And, And it's careful balance because the other thing is we are deeply aspirational about where these students are going. And primarily not because that's the outcome. It's because that's the start of an amazing journey. And so if we can offer them a life chance that gives them every opportunity, every possibility in the future, then why wouldn't we do that? So we do drive pretty high expectations around what's going on in lessons. uh, And we do also support them very well through the university guidance counselling team. You know, we talk a lot about best fit, uh, that the student must fit the institution that they're thinking about. But also, you know, we nudge and we cajole in concert with parents around, well, have you thought about this or have you thought about that? And of course, you know, everybody, I think these days gets a little bit bashful about talking about Cambridge and Oxford, but we don't really. And we talk about the Ivy Leagues, because there's a number of our students who are more than capable of applying to universities up the East Coast of America, and indeed the West Coast, nothing to do with the Ivy League. There are fantastic institutions all over the world. And so, you know, we sort of take the view what's wrong with being aspirational about that. And, uh, you know, we have a group of students that are capable of getting there.
0: It should never be a wrong. It's where schools, are that's all they're defined for, you know, and, you know, it can't be, you know, you as a, a head of school should be helping each of the child select a next level of education that's fit and right for them because they won't all survive in an Ivy League or an Oxbridge. But you know some that would and they would actually really do well, but others could work in, you know, go and do anything else. I'm really interested because I know that you won an award last year, one of these directory sites for the best school in post-16
1: education.
0: Does the award mean anything? And What does best school in post-16 education mean? Is it everything we've talked about or was there something more
1: Look, it's nice to get awards, and you don't enter award contests without wanting to win them. So, you know, obviously that's good. But I think there are many schools in the region and many schools worldwide who would be able to put up just as good an argument that we did then around our processes. I mean, again, from what I'm seeing with the university guidance team, very well led by Zoe Williams, is a team of people who are hugely committed to working with each individual. And exactly as you just describe. It's not about fitting them into boxes that we think are appropriate. It's about trying to understand each student and get them to a place where they're going to flourish beyond Tangent. And that really is the key aim. And so I think there's a good story in that. We have an interesting process here, which is a bit of a challenge to me because I've come out of a school with another really good higher education advice team. And at Shrewsbury in Bangkok, we talked a little about specialisms and we wanted to have deep knowledge of each particular country. Here at Tanglin is different, and I'm beginning to quite enjoy the fact that all of our counsellors have a more general view and are able to uh, start with the child. That's the first conversation, you know, where does the child or the student want to go, and where do we then seek the right advice? Now, initially, that can be difficult because all of those various destinations, I mean, they are global, genuinely. Uh, It could be Japan, it could be Australia, uh, a whole range of conversations. So we, in a sense, make it more difficult for ourselves from the starting point. But the outcomes speak for themselves. Uh, We get students to places where they do flourish. And I'm very excited about going up the West Coast of America in two or three weeks' time to go and see some of those alumni and find out what flourishing at those institutions mean. Yeah. I mean, part of running a school as well as being
0: sort of grounded by your values that I can see that are on the wall behind you. You've got respect, responsibility, and purpose. How important is it that schools really embed those
1: and live into those? And is there any way
0: to measure them when you got the West Coast
1: of America? I think measuring them is always hard. You know, the, the question, I think it's been in a few schools now over the years, and uh, do you live by your values, I think? And, you know, my, again, first impression over two terms, and also a comment that the uh, BSO team used when they were here in November, is that we really do live by our values. You can see it across the school. Uh, you can see the fact that the students are respectful. They uh, do take responsibility uh, for all manner of things, uh, not just their own behavior, but also for supporting others and supporting what the school is trying to do. And there is a real purpose, you know, as we've mentioned earlier on uh, before. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's going to be interesting at the West Coast to see whether those values are living on in our alumni. And I'm quite interested to know what that's like from the ones I've met so far. And I was very lucky to visit a couple at Oxford back earlier in the year that was absolutely the case. I mean, you couldn't have met two nicer individuals, but also two incredibly bright and driven, focused, purposeful individuals as well. So, uh, yeah, so far, I would be able to assemble the evidence. Whether you can measure that, you know, in a chart or a spreadsheet is a different thing. And I suppose that comes back to our earlier conversation about, you know, what does assessment and measurement really look like?
0: It's also about engagement, you know, it's the kind of questions you ask. So, you know, to me, Schools shouldn't have values unless they live into them. You, there needs to be some kind of measurement or it's some interest in going, actually, are we going to intentionally ask the questions? Because I love purpose. I think the values are brilliant. I mean, I was, I was chatting to school, I had 12 values the other day, and I said, you just got to get rid of them because they're meaningless. You know, Have something that's really clear, respect's really good responsibility. I love service. The American schools are big on service. But purpose, that sums it up to me. It's like everyone needs their own purpose. That's why you get up every day. Otherwise, you are in a box trying to drive a direction that someone else is maybe giving you the directions for. So I love that bit. So if you do get a chance, it's definitely something to ask all your alumni, but also the kids, the teachers will have the purpose, then you start to live into those things. I want to ask you on futures and careers. There's a school that actually turned their careers department into the futures department, but actually they didn't change anything internally, it became a label. We talked about the jobs that don't exist. Should we be doing more? to help understand what these jobs that don't exist, to actually bridge that gap. Going through it now with my 18-year-old, my daughter's all at university, she's fine. It's just they don't know what to do. Careers advice to me is is almost more important now because there's so many different avenues you can go down. What are you doing and what would you think about futures and how do we bridge that gap?
1: Funny enough, I quite like the futures tag, um, but I also think you're right that it's got to be meaningful. It's a much better phrase. It's a more inclusive phrase. I'm I'm no lover of either higher education, as we talked about at Shrewsbury or, or university guidance here. I think they're too narrow. It's too direct. There's way more in there. We sort of call ourselves UGC here, University Guidance and Careers. And I think, you know, you're absolutely. We talk about 21st century skills, I think I've said earlier on that we would much rather try and embed those in learning rather than teach them discreetly. But we talk about what skills we think students will need. But where does this stuff come from? You know, it comes from the people who are in work at the moment. So, you know, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but one of the things we do on our trips and one of the things we will be doing in a couple of weeks' time is talking to universities about work and about what it means to them, talking to alumni about work, And also, it's interesting, you begin to get some trends from those universities. So I remember pre-COVID being the last time I was in America was on the West Coast, and we went to a range of universities who were all building neuroscience departments, you know, so you could see the direction of travel. The previous year, uh, there was a massive set of conversations about innovation and computer science growing as two enormous courses. So you can see the direction of travel. what that doesn't always translate to is, okay, what is your job then? And I think that's then the conversation with alumni over dinner or as they're touring you around various places. So, you know, I remember a conversation with a Shrewsbury alum sat in a restaurant in San Francisco. She was doing quality control for Adobe. What does that actually look like to ensure that all those products look the same, are the same, work in the same way? There is a job that nobody would have invented, you know, five, 10 years ago. And the other angle that we have here is something that Craig Considine, our CEO, put in place over the last 12 to 18 months is the, is the institute, um, the Tanglin Institute. And we have a, a steering committee, uh, all parents, all in various industries across uh, Singapore. And of course, these are the people inventing these new jobs. You know, one of the parents from PayPal, uh, one of the parents, you know, a number of the parents, as you might imagine, involved in finance. You know, accountancy is accountancy. But accountancy now is in a very different place from where it was ten years ago in terms of what the work environment is like around you. You know, I think I go back to my earlier comments. I think sometimes schools are a little bit bashful about entering into these conversations because, frankly, the common room, the staff, kind of look and think, "Well, on earth are we going to get from that?" Um, but actually, the reality is you get a huge amount from engaging with business, engaging with local communities, engaging with your alum, and trying to understand what you're preparing these people for. Within that, what's also interesting, and you won't be surprised to know this, and perhaps this is why education and other industries don't move quite as fast as people believe, is that most of those employers are telling us that high standards, better standards of literacy, better standards of numeracy, can you please teach them how to code? They're also reasonably practical and direct piece of advice that we're getting from business as well. And some of those aren't quite as exciting as we're led to believe. But then it comes also down to the
0: people piece, you know, empathy, You know, understanding behavior. The robots are coming. We know it's here. These careers advisors, the futures teachers who are trying to guide or steward these young men and women into something they may be interested in, it's still an area that we could do so much more for because there are so many jobs now. You know, jobs have been displaced because of technology and it's created hundreds of new ones. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how a teacher's going to know this and constant training, development in those areas. I think those. Schools that can get that bit right, I think, are going to change the world. Because then you're allowing your talent pool to see opportunity. The accountants are going to go, that's one of the first things the robots will take. It's an easy thing that ChatGPT and AI is
1: already doing. The interesting thing, the holy grail, you know, so how do you as a school foster the possibility of entrepreneurship. You're a great example, somebody who's a highly successful entrepreneur in an industry that has grown exponentially over the last number of years. How do schools foster that environment to make that happen? And that, I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier on is providing a great holistic education. You know, it's very, very hard to specifically teach entrepreneurship. Now, interestingly enough, some of the things we were doing at Shrewsbury with our through our outreach program, were doing that with Thai students, upcountry Thai government schools, but at a level that wouldn't necessarily translate into the sorts of things you do and others do. So I think that's still a huge challenge, and I couldn't agree with you more that You know, trying to give support to the people who are guiding students around this is huge. And that's why, you know, we include the University Guidance Council lead on our trips to the US. She's got to be there. She's got to understand all this. You know, she's leading the guidance and advice within schools. But I don't believe for one minute that we're perfect or know it all. Absolutely not.
0: No, but again, incubating ideas, as you say, you know, with your, you know, new centenary building, all these great innovations coming out. I've seen great schools. And again, I've seen these more in in America. Absolutely invest in these startup pieces because every one of your those children that you have in your school, they all have great ideas. They just don't have a space. And actually some schools are taking skin in the game. So actually they're creating a framework where they go, look, and it's also teaching them to fail. That's where you learn the most. And I think in, in high achieving schools it's difficult to talk about the word fail. We need to talk more vulnerably about we all get better because we fail. I want to ask you one final question. I want you to look into your crystal ball. What do you think the future of education is going to be in 2050?
1: The fundamental change will be what the fundamental change over the last 25 years, which is that technology will continue to change what's in front of us. Where that goes and how it goes, I've absolutely no idea. I mean, we're all talking about ChatGBT at the moment and how we harness it, I hope. You know, that's certainly the conversation we have is not whether we should push it away, but how we harness it and use it as best we can. I'm sure that in another 25 years, that will have changed yet again in a way that I certainly wouldn't profess to understand. I'm hopeful, I think, teachers and people are still the key part of the process because, you know, going back to something you just said, that was interesting what you just said about accountancy. And I get where you're coming from that, you know, AI can probably do accountancy, but it it can't necessarily look at something like, for example, cost savings in a human way. It can run the numbers and find out where you can make efficiencies. But it can't necessarily make those decisions for you. Maybe it will. You know,
0: it would easily be able to provide you with a framework to get to a quicker decision, to have a conversation, and then show you how to manage it. You know, and actually give you development. So I, th- I think the technology, those things can do. But I'm with you on people, by the way, and that's always been central of every argument I've had on the future of education. It's people. Technology is a lever, it's an enabler, and it's we're not going to see it slow down anytime. We're all going to break. Great schools will bring the right technology in you know how do you introduce chat GPT? you know some schools are we're not others are going great we've got to flip our learning we've got to teach kids how to use
1: it properly and we're very much in the latter camp that I think you know technology like that comes along you've got to understand the potential pitfalls but you've got to use it and utilise it and hearing the other day that In at least a couple of our lessons already, we're having students critically analyze uh, what's coming out of GPT. I mean, what a great way to learn, you know, that you're given a stimulus that you can get into. I think you're absolutely right about, you know, AI stuff. But I also think and I'm hopeful that it will focus on what people do really well. You know, what AI arguably won't do is inspire people to go on and do things. And I think that's really if you think about what's going on in schools right now, as tough as education is in some respects you know, good teachers, great teachers inspire people about, can be about the subjects, it can be about the types of things they might want to do in the future, as we've talked about with futures or university guidance. It can be just inspiring in terms of human interaction and actually understanding that people work on a particular level. And when you go back and certainly, I suppose, I'll be 50 next year, so I'm starting to reflect on my career and where it's going, what you end up Remembering are all the people that made a big difference and all the people that had an impact on how you feel. And I think that's what makes a difference. You know, sometimes it's quite hard to rationalize why you end up doing things, why I've been a teacher for 20 plus years. Um, but I suppose when I think about it deeply, it's about how Mr. Lane made me feel in history all those years ago. Yeah, you know, how my PE teachers made me feel when things were going well on sports fields. Yeah, you know, how I felt by being successful at certain things uh, through my academic career. So everybody's different, but I, I suppose that's what I've been reflecting on uh, recently is that that human interaction, that human connection, uh, I'm hopeful that that will be the thing that we really begin to remember as being the key part of schools and yeah you're right technology is a great enabler it offers us unbelievable opportunities but wouldn't the world be a sad place if we didn't have those distinct memories of how other people made us feel
0: you can connect with me on twitter instagram and via linkedin remember keep inspiring schools we need more future school thinking now